0: The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Vinhook for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there!
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience and technology stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is a partnership between the Society of Economic Geologists and Sequent. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. Your hosts for this series are Nicole Doucette from Sequent, Anne Thompson from Petroscience Consultants, and I am Hallie Keevil, Project Geologist at Cobalt Metals. In last week's sequent episode, Nicole and her guests explored geoscience technology through time and how this has affected mining and geoscience. In keeping with the conference themes for the SEG 100th Anniversary Conference, which will now be held in 2021, I was thinking about the theme Game Changers, the first 100 years. And I couldn't think of a better deposit to discuss an Olympic dam in South Australia. Since the discovery of Olympic dam in 1975 by Western Mining Corporation, countless experts have worked to understand IOCG deposits in general. With the development of Olympic Dam also came unique metallurgical problems that launched a huge amount of research into geometallurgy, which many economic geologists don't even think about until it's too late. Additionally, such a big deposit that's been around for so long has resulted in, well, big data. Since Olympic Dam has spearheaded discussion on how to define the IOCG deposit model, the importance of geometallurgy in mining, and the handling of big data, we have some special guests here today to talk to us about these topics. First off, we have Kathy Ehrig, Superintendent Geometallurgy for BHP at Olympic Dam, who also happens to be the SEG Silver Medal winner for 2020. And I'm really excited to chat to her about Olympic Dam and
0: its discovery. Completely blind discovery. So the important thing in prior to 1975, WMC had been searching for copper from the late 50s. They, They wanted to find large tonnage, high-grade deposits. They didn't want to look search for porphyry copper deposits. So at the, about that time, one of their employees who had decided to go off to do a PhD was working on sediment-hosted copper deposits. And they ended up on the Stewart shelf as one of their, of their many different targets. And everything's completely blind there. But what they were doing is they were trying to test a model where you had an oxidized tholytic basalt as a source of the copper having favorable structures and stratigraphy to once the copper was mobilized and mobilized along the structure that had hit a reducing stratigraphy and precipitate the copper out. And one of the focusing things for the Stewart Shelf was they happened to have a lot of gravity and magnetic data that had been released by the government. So the first hole was actually not designed to find a deposit. It was designed to test this favorable stratigraphy of the exploration model that they had developed. it in and itself was probably the first time that a true holistic model was used for an exploration project, and it led to a very successful discovery.
1: I was reading about how with wider gravity spacing, they may not have discovered it.
0: Oh, you know what? The, the gravity spacing at the time was 10 kilometer, or it could have even been greater. At the time, the, the, the Bureau of Mines, which was the Australian equivalent of the USGS, they're now Geoscience Australia... They had just released very widely spaced gravity magnetic data. So it wasn't even close space stuff. So you gotta remember this is the early seventies. And and even right. if they even had wider space gravity data, they would have still seen the anomalies out here. They just wouldn't have been as, as tightly focused, but they certainly didn't have the benefit of the nice tightly spaced gravity magnetic data that we have available now.
1: So they're they're approximately Nine billion tons of ore. To yeah, down, that's
0: right. right? It, it's over ten billion. It depends on how you want to define cutoff grades and all that. But the resource is ten billion t- is ten billion tons.
1: And and what are the average grades? We're an
0: underground operation. So as an underground operation, the our typical head grades are plus two percent copper. You know, five hundred to seven hundred ppm uranium. About about point six ppm gold and a few ppm of silver. Yeah. Wow. So we're even though it's a it it is a ten billion ton resource with it with the resource grade, you know, very roughly around, you know, point seven percent copper.
1: If if I understand correctly, the discovery of Olympic Dam really put this deposit class on the map in terms of significant deposit types. So before uh, Olympic Dam was discovered, what had any RCG deposits been discovered?
0: Actually not. The the whole term Olympic Dam was it started off as the, the art archetype deposit for what ended up being called CGs, But when Olympic Dam was discovered, it was the first one where you had a very iron-rich deposit that happened to be enriched in copper, uranium, gold, silver, plus all kinds of other elements. So other large deposits that had been discovered prior to that were very, very iron-rich, excluding this the typical banded iron formations where it's like the Karuna Iron Ore District and the other iron-rich deposits in, in Sweden. There was also the, the Southeastern Missouri Iron Ore District, where they'd been known for a long, long time before that. Other things that were similar were the Wernicke Mountain breaches in the Yukon, the Great Bear Magmatic Zone, and Bayanobo District. So th- these were all deposits that had... A lot of iron or potentially a lot of iron in them, but not not known for their copper and gold and uranium and ultimately silver. So Olympic Dam was the first one that said, ha, these iron-rich deposits, some of these real iron-rich deposits can actually host copper. And that actually led on to the whole classification or the the naming of an IOCG based on Murray Hitzman's paper in 1992.
1: And can you give the listeners an idea of the main characteristics of the Olympic dam deposit? For those those who may not know, I I understand that every IOCG deposit has its own unique characteristics, and that's why it's so hard to come up with a genetic model for all IOCGs. But what's like the dominant theory on how Olympic dam Mm. itself formed? And and what are the characteristics of Olympic dam?
0: First of all, it's concealed under 350 meters of a flat-lying uh, cover sequence that's, that's roughly a billion years younger than the deposit. And so if we just, just do a little uh, reflection back, when the discovery team was looking for the deposit in the early 70s or the mid-70s, they were actually in a terrain that was completely undercover. So completely undercover, it's a tectonal magmatic hydrothermal breccia-hosted Iron oxide, copper, gold, uranium deposit, so IOCG, but with a a subclass that has a lot of uranium in it. Mineralization completely sits within what we call the Olympic Dam Breccia Complex, which has a footprint at that unconformity of about uh, 50 square kilometers. And the Breccia Complex is hosted within the 1593 uh, million-year-old Roxby Downs Granite the deposit footprint itself, so the really mineralized part of that breccia complex, is about six kilometers long, about three kilometers wide, and it, on average is about 800 meters deep. There's an unequivocal spatial correlation between iron, copper, gold, uranium, and silver across to the deposit due to co precipitation in the metals, but the very close link to the iron. There is a uh, deposit wide mineralogical zonation across. And it really looks from progressing from um, an increase from iron on the edges of the, of the breccia complex and at that depth on the complex moving up and towards the center. So the iron content really steadily increases from going about 3% iron up to greater than 60% in the, in the center of the deposit. There's a clear change in the iron oxide mineralogy and really, the iron oxide association, you go from a, a really reduced iron phases from Fe plus 2 into Fe plus 3, and that's manifested as having a deep magnetite, apatite, chlorite. And that transition in transitions into and is replaced by extensive hematite sericite, which Olympic Dam is really known for. A very uh, systematic feature in it is the zoning of, of the major sulfides where you go from pyrite, cacopyrite, boronite, to cacosite from the edges of the deposit more towards the center. We also have three dominant uranium minerals. And there's three styles of gold mineralization, where we have gold that's not associated with sulfides, and then gold associated with sulfides.
1: But like most deposit types, you cannot forget the importance of structure.
0: So that's just the the general characteristics of the deposit. But one thing that wasn't mentioned there that's incredibly important is... Is structure. Big ore deposits have big structures, and Olympic Dam has big structures in it. And those big structures helped facilitate the, the tapping into the mantle, and where we have strong evidence for that, and we have deep alkaline magmatic source. This is manifested in the in the deposit by an abundance of mafic, but more importantly, ultramafic lavas and, and dikes that are intimately associated with mineralization. And there's also uh, felsic volcanics around. So, Olympic Dam itself is located along a major structure. That major structure at least allowed us to tap into a mantle source for magmas, but also a heat source. And edges of cratons are wonderful things, and particularly on edges where you have long-lived activity, uh, there's clearly strong evidence that you know we've tapped into metasomatized subcontinental lithospheric mantle. So structure is very important for the location of the deposit, but it's also even more important for the preservation of that de- of that deposit. There's more than three and a half kilometers a vertical offset along these structures. So that helped drop Olympic Dam down in further into the basement and, and help preserve that deposit.
1: Ray, I was listening to um, a lecture by John Thompson mm. on the ore deposits hub, he was talking about yes. arcs versus rips and saying, "Where where do IRCGs fit?" And he sort of left it open ended: whether IRCGs should fit in an arc setting or a rip setting or some sort of yep. transitional setting.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I, I listened listened that. So so that that ore deposit hub thing is fantastic. Right. It is fantastic series also, or starting to be a fantastic series. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. What what. One of the unfortunate things in South Australia is most things are undercover, which kind of hinders our understanding of arc-related or or rift-related. There probably was an old arc here, but what's probably more important is the the overprinting later on of a rift system. And there's a lot of evidence for the rift around here. We have a thing called the Karawalu Basin, which sets off just directly to the west of Olympic Dam. and we not only believe that importance of that, but the people that were working on the discovery model for the deposit actually understood the importance of rifting, and they were looking for rifting but sediment hosted copper deposits and the importance of redbeds you know and sandstone, so they're all around, and we kind of just revisit things over and over hybrid, so I think I completely agreed with John that it's it's not strictly a porphyry setting arcs were involved or subduction zones were involved, the one form or another, but the rift system is what overtook the whole process for Olympic Dam.
1: Right. And, and you mentioned that Olympic Dam is, is magmatic hydrothermal. Do you know anything about causative intrusion? Are there is there a correlation in age between the, the igneous rocks surrounding Olympic Dam and the mineralization? Or yep. Is it a deeper source? Yes. And, and that,
0: that's interesting. It has always been believed that that no matter what host rocks are are sitting in, that there's a very strong correlation with these with the mineralization and what was called the the or Large Igneous Province, you know, of, of about 15 90 million years ago. Now, at Olympic Dam, we sit in the Roxby Downs granite, and that Roxby Downs granite we have the ID TIMS dates for the Roxby Downs granite, and it's 1594.2. We've also dated iron oxides, and and that's also been published in high precision dating that show that there's probably no more than about two million years difference between the intrusion of the Roxby Downs granite and the hematite that sits within the, the Roxby Downs granite, that sits within the Breccia complex. So does the Roxby Downs granite, is that the source of metals? Probably not. But the region or the magma that that was the source of the Roxby Downs granite probably is. Moving
1: away from Olympic Dam, Kathy also touched on the differences between Proterozoic IOCGs, such as the Olympic Dam, versus the Mesozoic deposits that form in places like South America, and some of the research that's been done on these deposits.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting question, because, and, and that's the, the root of the problems with IOCGs. I think the classification of them. Long ago, I used to facetiously say that if it if a copper deposit wasn't a porphyry, it wasn't a sediment hosted, she just called it an IOCG and then tried to shove it in there. There has been recognition for a long time that there's quite a breadth of these different ones that don't fit all the other classic sort of style of deposits. So the, the work of the later papers, you know, with Jeremy Richards did a beautiful comparison. John Thompson's done a good comparison. Dave Grove's paper in 2010, a comparison and actually a lot of people trying just to break down this big, huge spectrum of everything that's lumped into an IOCG, there's clearly subtypes within that, just like there are subtypes within porphyry copper deposits, but our subtypes span a lot bigger, uh, a lot bigger range. So yes, there needs to be a lot more work on that to actually understand it.
1: So before we dive into geometallurgy as a topic, I'm gonna be getting another opinion on IOCG deposits from Tim Baker who is currently Chief Geoscientist at Eldorado Gold. He's done extensive work on IOCG deposits from Australia all the way to the Yukon Territory. So thank you very much for being here today, Tim. And I'll start with a question about theories behind IOCG deposits. So there are many, many theories in the literature about IOCGs, some lumping them all together and some splitting them into subcategories. I chatted with Kathy a bit about this, for example, there's literature on Olympic Dam that refers to magmatic hydrothermal characteristics, while the Wernicke breccias in the Yukon are believed by some to have formed from basinal fluids. Can you give a brief synopsis of these leading theories?
2: Sure, yeah. It's a very sort of clouded and controversial area, the classification of ICG deposits. Um, and it does reflect the sort of complexity of these deposit types. You know, you've got the literature talks about everything ranging from IOCG, sensu stricto, where you're looking at the real sort of breccia-style IOCGs, and then people draw on comparisons with sort of Karuna-type, iron oxide, appetite deposits, which are often in the same districts. People have made links to porphyry, SCARN deposits. But I think the best thing to do is sort of step back and just think about the deposits themselves and, and what the key features are. So the key thing is... They're, they typically contain some economic copper. They may contain o- economic gold, and often actually the grades of the copper and gold are pretty good compared to say typical porphyry systems. So copper grades are in the, in around one percent. Gold grades can be half a gram to a, a gram, and in some cases there's also economic um, uranium in them. So that, that's where the sort of it, the, the copper and gold aspect come in. But one of the chief characteristics is the oxide content so massive amounts of magnetite and or hematite and lower sulfur contents so compared again to say a a porphyry system and then in terms of how they look they often have very well developed brecches And those brektures are often in sort of structurally controlled environments, often on big scale regional structures and then sort of localised structures. And the sort of mineral systems approach to looking at all deposits really works well on IOCGs because they are such big, big systems. And it's a very aggressive fluid that forms these regional alteration and ultimately the the deposits themselves. So very high salinity, ultra saline brines with a very important CO2 component to those fluids. And they've caused this widespread sodic calcic alteration. And then within the deposits itself, the mineralization is typically more associated with sort of potassic alteration and the oxides and then the sulfide. And there's kind of an evolution from that early sodic calcic alteration to potassic alteration and then into the oxides and, and the actual sulfide mineralization. So they are, they are big-scale systems. One of the issues that is challenging from a classification point of view is they can occur in a different variety of hosts. So that is, it makes it quite challenging in terms of classification because depending on what the host rocks are can sort of influence the types of alteration and mineralogy of the systems.
1: Yeah, I saw Murray Hitzman give a talk a few years ago on IOCGs and he started off the talk with... I'm here to talk about IOCG deposits because I'm apparently a world expert in the topic, which is funny because I actually don't know what they are. (laughs) And I mean, obviously, he knows more than a lot of people, but it was pretty funny to hear him introduce the talk like that. (laughs) And I also uh, once saw Jeremy Richards give a talk uh, specifically on IOCG deposits related to igneous systems, which I believe he also published in Geology in 2013. And he stated that, Perhaps IOCG deposits in Precambrian rocks formed by the same processes as Phanerozoic porphyry deposits. So he stated that these Precambrian IOCGs might be formed by subduction-modified magmatic sources, but at the time arc magmas were sulfur-poor, while arc magmas in the Phanerozoic are sulfur-rich. So this would result in these oxide-rich IOCG deposits that we see in the Precambrian versus the sulfide-rich deposits we see in in Phanerozoic porphyries. Do you have opinions on, on this theory?
2: Yeah, I think I think it's a, it's a, an interesting theory. It can be kind of hard to, to prove whether that's correct or not. There's certainly a foundation in the sense that IOCGs are sulfur poor and porphyry systems, huge amounts of sulfur in them, massive amounts of pyrites, which you just don't see in IOCG deposits. So there has to be some sort of fundamental reason for that. And perhaps that sort of broader scale control from less, you know, less, Sulfur in the uh, original subduction environment may have caused that. I think one thing you have to try and work out with ICGs, though, is they're definitely they're not forming in the intrusions that are potentially driving these systems, so that's a fundamental difference from porphyry deposits and perhaps sulfur has a role in that and if you 've got less sulfur in the system, you don't have a high enough saturation or concentration of sulfur in the fluids, therefore you need to get more sulfur in the system as, as the fluids move more distally from from the potential intrusion source. However, there are some real key Fundamental differences, I think, when you look at the fluid character of IOCGs, because they are have these ultra saline fluids, there's a lot of CO2 in them. And some of the work we did on the protozoic systems, particularly in the Klong district, we looked at sin uh, IOCG batholiths. So a lot of these terrains have big batholiths that. F- that were in place at around about the same time as the icg's the icg's aren't hosted in those but there's clear connections to those intrusions we did this detailed study on on the fluids related to the williams batholith which was what that that occurrence was forming in and it really showed that very, very high temperature, very high salinity magmatic brines in that environment were carrying a lot of copper, but not much sulfur. So that sort of leads into the idea that, well, these are sulfur-poor systems, and then perhaps the sulfur comes more into play as you get more distal. The other really interesting thing about the ICGs in most districts is the nature of the breccias and the structure that controls those breccias These fluids are very volatile. They punch up through the surrounding country rocks and smash through them and and we think that those fluids are being driven a big contribution coming off the magmas themselves but a lot of those protozoic systems there's clearer role for evaporites you've got scapolite alteration all through that district you've got evidence for ex evaporitic beds in in the stratigraphy much older than the deposits but but a more important I think from a economic deposit point of view is that really high concentration of copper coming off the magmas that then potentially mixes with all these regional brines and fluids and ultimately forms distal from any intrusion source but gets trapped in the right structural environment and potentially the right host rocks. So for example you can have pre-existing magnetite or banded iron formations in the stratigraphy that could be a good host or a good structural trap for for these systems.
1: So on that note do you think there, there really are multiple deposit styles and genetic models? Or have we lumped this all into one classification wrongly?
2: Yeah, I, I think it is the nature of these deposits in the sense that they, they are complex in the way they form. They certainly pull in different fluid types into them. And because they're forming distal from any potential intrusion source, the host rocks can be very different. You, you'll get a different host rock and therefore a different alteration. So they are challenging from that point of view. But I think I do like the paper by Groves in 2010 because it really focused in on the economic deposits. And when you look at those, there is some key sort of magmatic tra- trace data to, to those deposits that suggest that really to get big economic IOCGs, you need that magmatic component. And we did a really interesting study in the Wernicke Brechtures in 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 the Yukon. It was Julie Hunt's PhD. And there it was a great example to look at IOCGs where there's clearly uh, no syn magmatic activity and yet there clearly is IOCG characteristics to those brectures and some copper and gold occurrences, but none of them are economic. But I think the real true economic ones like Olympic Dam, Ernest Henry, uh, a lot of the Chilean examples need that magmatic component to really get the temperatures up, get the copper contents up and form economic deposits.
1: Interesting. So you'd think that for at least the large economic ICGs, they form by the same process and they might look different because the host rocks are different.
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: Great. So I have one last question for you. If you had to define an IOCG deposit in the broadest sense for someone who has never heard of the term IOCG, and if you had to do it in under 10 sentences, what would you say? (laughs)
2: Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So I would describe them as being economic in terms of copper, potentially gold, potentially uranium. In terms of the character of the deposits, their mineralogy is dominated by oxides rather than sulfide, so magnetite and or hematite. And these systems are characterized by intense brectures, and those brectures are usually structurally controlled. And those structures are big regional scale structures. They have vast alteration associated with them, and that alteration can kind of zone from a widespread sodic calcic alteration so a lot of albite, actinolite and so on in terms of the mineralogy of that widespread alteration and then as you come into the deposit you start seeing more potassium rich alteration, potassium feldspars and then with that you get the magnetite, hematite and the copper and gold mineralization typically sort of syn oxides to overprinting the oxides and the host rocks may be very variable so they do have a very varied character to them because, they have this, because they're distal from any intrusions and they form over a, a wide range of depths. So, yeah, absolutely, they're hard things to easily characterize, but there are some key features about them that give them the IOCG classification. So, yeah, pretty challenging. we have chatted with Cathy and, you know, Olympic Dam, that's a complex deposit. It's got copper, it's got gold, it's got uranium. So you've got all these processing aspects. Other deposits, a bit more simple. it's Henry, for example, it's just copper and gold. So you haven't got the uranium issue. So, yeah, it depends on what the, what the deposit character is.
1: So there can be quite a lot of geometallurgical complexity to worry about as well. It's Absolute. not all smooth sailing once you get into production.
2: Absolutely. yeah. Like most mining projects, discovery is the first step, but then um, they get even more challenging as, as you go towards development.
1: Now we'll go back to Kathy Erig and move away from IOCG deposit models and into geometallurgy. Can you briefly explain the geometallurgical complexity that exists at Olympic Dam? I understand there are over 100 minerals occurring across the ore body, and surely the fact that you process uranium must add to this complexity.
0: Yes. It's interesting. What adds to the complexity here is not only the... it, It really roots back to the ore body and the minerals in the ore body and how you're actually going to recover those different metals. So at Olympic Dam, we recover copper, uranium, gold, and silver. Copper. Gold and silver really go through the process together. Uranium requires a a separate process. So that actually starts adding to the complexity. So fundamentally, we take the material, we grind everything up, and we do a flotation. And that first stage of flotation makes a copper sulfide concentrate, which most people in the world are familiar with. And the bulk of the, the gold and silver also go along with that. That concentrate goes through a leaching process, but into a smelter. Then we make an anode, and then we make cathode. The uranium side, though, is the uranium doesn't recover to that concentrate 100%. Some of it does. But in general, the, the uranium actually recovers to our flotation tailings. So our flotation tailings, we actually have to take those and use a sulfuric acid leach to recover them. Then we have to go through a solvent extraction process to take that uranium out and then use uranium precipitation. So because we have or metals that have very different types of recovery properties or require a different process that makes things a little bit more complex and things are a little bit more complex at Olympic Dam, so we ship copper cathode, we ship gold and silver bullion, and we ship a uranium oxide concentrate, and everything's on site smelting and refining are also everything's on site so the the sulphide stream communicates with the with the uranium stream and likewise the uranium stream back so Everything is really it's fully integrated, so subtle changes in the ore body can actually have impact on different parts of that process plant at any one time
1: i I was looking at one of your recent uh presentations, and there was a slide with a picture of Albert Einstein on the front saying, "If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough yes." Can you state why you, why you had this quote written at the beginning of a presentation on Olympic Dam, which yeah. to me does not sound simple?
0: <laughs> yeah. A lot of times as technical people, we, we get hung up in complexity and complexity is an excuse for not delivering on something. But Olympic Dam, being a breccia complex, the descriptive system for logging was based on trying to understand what the, the provenance of the class were. And and everybody was really hung up on the breaches and trying to classify that. And I get there and I start working, coming in and thinking that I knew everything. But I come in and said, you know, there's got to be zoning here and it's got to be reflective. So I started looking at their classification system and it just didn't work. You know, their logging system was okay for logging, but I couldn't do anything with it. So let's go back to the minerals and say, are the minerals actually systematically behaving themselves? And yes, they do. So it's a classic example of of we often get confused by complexity, and and we should be stepping back from it and say, okay, this part of the process seems horribly complex. Let me go down to a more fundamental level and see if I can understand those components better, and then rebuild back up again and try to uh, address that complexity. When you're trying to understand a complex ore deposit, You don't start in the highest grade part of that deposit. And particularly like Olympic Dam, it's too complicated. At that stage, you have to go back out towards the edges of the deposit where you can see things a lot easier and and you can interpret them and start moving into the areas that are far more complex.
1: No kidding. Yeah. So in your Exploration Radio podcast, you were saying that geometallurgy as a field didn't even really exist Uh, or it wasn't called geometallurgy when you started at at Olympic Dam. And one of your many claims to fame is that you basically characterized this mineralogical complexity at Olympic Dam, which resulted in geometallurgical in success. So can you describe the process, like from when, where you started to where you're at now? Is this process
0: ongoing? Sure. Yeah. It started from the time that I was hired. So the person that hired me for Olympic Dam was Roy Whittle. He hired me to do two things at the deposit. One, try to understand how the deposit was formed, but then to also provide mineralogical support to metallurgy. And th- that kind of thing was also, that structure was set up in the nickel mines that WMC had. So the director of exploration fully understood that it, not only knowing what's in the ground that mattered. So back in, the, in those days, and when I started Olympic Dam in 1992, we were doing ore characterization work. So that was the term we called it long before the word geometallurgy came out. And it was just trying to understand on a short-term basis how the different ores actually reacted in that plant and trying to improve our ability to to predict what those recoveries are going to be. Because as you go across most deposits, recoveries change. We started off very small and very small by understanding what was going through the plant and actually trying to relate how how the mineralogical changes actually impacted on the process and gradually building up the data sets that would allow us to map the mineralogy completely across the deposit as at the same time I was also working on understanding or doing all the test work that was necessary to, to understand how those minerals actually reacted in the process. By time um, BHP came along in 2005 and bought Olympic Dam out. They had already had a lot of experience from Escondida with Geomet, you know, and, and the word geometallurgy was starting to be used, was, was, was coined by them. And that just went along with the, the whole BHP side of things is that we needed to characterize this stuff because we were trying to design the process for the future. And so you actually needed to know actually what these recoveries would be. So one of the real, real pushes on it is we actually have a mineral called chlorite, you know, chlorite's typical for a lot of deposits around and that chlorite actually significantly impacts on the leaching circuit. And we didn't know about it, but we had excursions on the concentration of that chlorite that brought our plant to a screeching halt that focused a lot of tension. So for us, our real, case study as to why we do geomet and why we do it at Olympic Dam is really around chlorite, but then we can add all kinds of other stories around that also. But chlorite was probably the one it was the real defining moment for us.
1: Okay, so clearly it's super important to integrate geometallurgists and geologists from as early stage as possible.
0: That's right. Yeah. Those minerals that I am seeing, actually, what's it going to cost for me to recover those and it's it's very doable. It's always easier and cheaper, believe it or not, to start characterizing your minerals from the very beginning in, in your evaluation stage or even from discovery. And you just keep on that work all the way through the deposit so you don't have to go back years later and try to do mass characterization of your mineralogy when you're trying to design the plant. Historically, we used to have a, just a lot of chemical data and chemical data is actually just proxies for the minerals in the deposit if you really think about it but assays were easy to get detailed mineralogy was not easy to get until really about 10 years ago on you know on the deposit scale metallurgy doesn't recover they don't process elements they actually process minerals so my whole thing on the work that i was doing you know plus 20 years ago is to say okay we got to characterize the minerals in the deposit cuz that's what matters and it doesn't matter what the grade of a particular element is. If it's in a mineral that the metallurgist can't recover, that recovery is not quite right. So we take that mineralogical information and we can not only in the mine environment, it pushes back to the expiration stage even. There's a, a significant need to characterize the minerals in your deposit or in your even in your drill core at the expiration phase and communicate with metallurgists to actually see those minerals that I am seeing – Actually, what's it going to cost for me to recover those?
1: Are you, are you aware of any project where Geomet issues actually halted an otherwise economic project?
0: Not halted them, but delayed them delivering what they were supposed to deliver for quite a long time. I'm sure that there, there's cases out there, but I'm not aware of any. But our, our lateritic type deposits, nickel laterites in particular, are are some of the best publicized ones where... Where you design a plant that, and the ore you send through it is completely not treatable in that plant. And, and those are the things that we're trying to stop. And we're trying to stop even in, in base metal deposits that the ore that you test when you design a plant is not the ore that might be going through a few years after you do all your, your plant design. So it certainly delayed it and cost them a lot more money than what they thought they were going to do to get initial production up and going.
1: Are all of these GeoMet studies that have been conducted, would these be important at every deposit type? Is this a blanket concept that should be applied everywhere? Or are there certain deposit types with consistent mineralogy and and no extreme alteration, like, for example, magmatic sulfides, where GeoMet is, is maybe less important?
0: Ah, that's an incredibly interesting question. And it's interesting in the sense that, let's say, like nickel sulfide, magmatic nickel sulfide deposits that we think are nice and uniform, they're actually not when you start processing them. And they usually have their, their ore mineralogy is fairly consistent, but their, their trace metals are not. And it turns out their gang mineralogy is quite variable in and, and sulfide-hosted nickel deposits. That things like talc are incredibly important because it, it screws up a thing called a magnesium-iron ratio. So you'd think on a base metal deposit that we would think is more homogeneous than a typical copper one, they have problems. When we go into our bulk commodity friends, and, and our bulk commodities like iron ore or even coal, they have significant variation in their mineralogy across the deposit that impacts on their quality of their product at the end of the day. So it does matter, it matters for all different types of deposits.
1: So we've heard about geometallurgy at Olympic Dam, but as Kathy Eric stated, geomet is important in every deposit style. So for this part of the episode, Betsy Friedlander from Tech Resources is here with us, and she's going to be speaking to us about the importance of integrating geometallurgy with geology in general. I first asked her how she got into geomet.
3: Well, geometallurgy is so fascinating to me because it takes these really interesting rocks that we study and try to characterize in space, and it translates it into what's actually economic and what's not how I got into geometallurgy in the first place is when I was working up at Red Dog. We were working on a couple of the deposits beyond the main mine, and we were collecting samples for geometallurgical study and trying to piece the puzzle in terms of collecting samples that's as representative as possible across the deposit to then see how do they behave in the flow sheet and then actually try to figure out And predict and model not only just how much metal is in the deposit, but what's the recovery and is that concentrate that you make from that rock going to be saleable? So it's really fascinating. The other reason I'm really enjoying geometallurgy right now is that I get to work with engineers, both in terms of like mine planning engineers, but also metallurgical engineers,
1: Right. So it sounds like they're super integrated. And I, for one, never learned about geometallurgy in school. Do you think that economic geologists should have metallurgy as part of their uh, course requirements in university and vice versa for metallurgists uh, learning about geology?
3: Yeah, I think because there is such an important link, I think the, the metallurgists, sometimes geologists have this view of metallurgists that they just think the deposit is, homogeneous throughout and there's nothing that changes throughout the deposit and so for a metallurgist to be able to understand a basic uh, part of geology and the variability that um, exists across the deposit is really important. On the flip side it's also important for geologists to really understand that a flow sheet and metallurgists can actually adapt and change and need to adapt and change with different rock types that are Um, coming down the path and then when the mine planning comes into play is how to actually optimize that throughout the life of that mine in terms of integrating the, the different ore types and rock types that go through whether or not you blend that or you change up the mill as time goes on and you adopt and adapt your mill but if you can plan for that you can know it and it can be essentially optimized from mine through the mill
1: So do you think the application of of GeoMet to mine geologists is is really catching on? Or do you think it's sort of a niche topic that only comes up when something goes
3: wrong in the mill? (laughs) Why do you ask that, Allie?
1: (laughs) Because I've heard about many deposits where something goes wrong and then they can't process anymore. I've heard that story time and time again.
3: Yeah, no, I also have heard that story time and time again. I think we are now evolving as an industry in terms of, Trying to be, in general, more predictive about what we think is going to happen throughout the mine life of a deposit, which is more than grade, It's recoverable metal and then saleable concentrates. And ultimately, you can measure that by a whole bunch of different metrics. But the fact that historically looking back, metallurgy linking the geology and the metallurgy, you're right, has happened when things have gone wrong. And when the mill can't process and recover the metal out of the rock, and so then there's a moment of lag time and adoption. Whereas, hopefully, what we're trying to do now for for depo- future deposits is actually work on that plan and and understand what's actually going to happen throughout time. For current mines, though, there is incentive to ramp up and really hone in the geometallurgy in terms of of optimizing throughput, whether that's hardness or optimizing recovery in terms of understanding what's actually coming down and how they think the mill's going to be able to handle it. It
1: sounds like tech's doing a really good job of all that.
3: Yeah, I think so. I think tech and, and other companies right now are really working on their geometallurgical work and integration. And the challenge of geometallurgy is that it isn't just a person who's a geometallurgist. Geometallurgy takes a bunch of people that are focused on their specialty actually working and collaborating together. So as an example, like going back to what I said, is that a geologist, we're supposed to characterize material in space. A metallurgist is designing to extract that metal out of the rock, but also we have the mine planning, we have limitations for what can actually be mined at what times, we have sequencing, And it really does take understanding everybody's input and working together, which is also the challenge of geometallurgy because we all come at it with different perspectives.
1: Right. And speaking totally different languages as well, I assume, like geologist lingo is very different than geomet lingo.
3: Yes, we actually have a a running joke on one of the projects I'm on where we say in met terms or in geologic (laughs) terms. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like as an example of grain size. Grain size in geologic terms, which you know what grain size means, is, is the size of, of the grain. But if you increase grade and you have a bunch of fine grains that are next to each other, in MET terms, that's actually could be considered coarse grain. Because they don't care about the primary and grain size. They care about what particle can actually get liberated to be grabbed in, in flotation. Crazy. Mm-hmm.
1: How long did it take you to learn the MET lingo?
3: Oh, I'm still learning it, Hallie.
1: I can imagine. (laughs) So back to you. You said you started thinking about GeoMed when you were working at Red Dog, but now you work in Trail, correct? Correct. And what was that transition like and what deposit styles have you looked at working for tech with respect to GeoMetallurgy?
3: Yeah, so I had a great opportunity to take a secondment out here with our technical services group that's based in Trail. While here, I've gotten exposed to a number of other of the deposits that we're working on with tech from San Nicolas to Galore to Masaba and then obviously still still supporting both Red Dog and HVC as well so it's been a really fun way for me selfishly to get to know the guts of a deposit through really understanding the and supporting the geometallurgical efforts.
1: Yeah, that sounds super interesting. So lastly, I wanted to touch on data. It sounds like with all these deposit styles and geologists and geochemists and geometallurgists and engineers working together, there is a ton of data coming in. So how do you know what the important data are when you're working with mineralogical data, geochemical data, geomet tests? And how do you go about figuring this all out for the system that you're working with?
3: That is a good question. And it really depends on the actual geologic system you're working on but also the quality and quantity of data across the deposit. There's a hierarchy of data in terms of what's important. So your recovery data, you're obviously not going to have a flotation test done on every single assay interval across your deposit. That's really silly and, and, and a terrible use of money. But what we can do is we can work towards what are the main geologic drivers for metallurgy and hardness and what data sets help describe that across the deposit that we can use to, bet, to better model it. Like our models are wrong, they're always wrong, but the whole point is you want to get the least wrong model with the <laughs> most confidence and something that we're working towards is, is working towards a confidence in that. I think something that is important is to come back to what is the data able to tell us, but also does it make sense geologically and metallurgically? So sometimes there might be like a random element that has a really strong correlation to, say, grain size or recovery or something that is an important GeoMet driver. But it just doesn't make sense. Right. So you really have to loop back and say, let's look at the data. Let's see what it tells us. But also what makes sense and sometimes sometimes stepping back and going to something simpler is actually going to be less wrong.
1: That makes perfect sense. So it's more about looking at the right data than the big data.
3: Yeah. and But I mean, the big data can also tell us something that we actually can't see as well. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. like by no means discounting that at all. In fact, I think that is a really important step. But understanding the confidence in your data, the right data that is related to those geologic processes or those metallurgical processes, that makes sense as well. So as mentioned, it's clear that we
1: need to step back and understand the right data before we can really apply big data. I'll be chatting with Kathy Eric one more time about the concept of big data and how BHP handles the large amounts of data that have inevitably come with a mine that's been operating for over 30 years. Kathy has done a really amazing job of taking a complex ore deposit and really getting down to the bare bones of what is needed for the most simple processing. So I was curious about how data were handled at the very beginning of the mine
0: life. Difficult, it was, it was difficult. The volume of data that we had was significantly less. Long time ago, you didn't have massive data sets, but even if you had them, you would have had a difficult time dealing with them. But the good way to think about it is how how the the reserves and resources would have been managed. They actually had mainframe computers and they had to subdivide the deposit into a lot smaller units and do the resource estimations on those a lot smaller blocks. So the Olympic Dam deposit was probably subdivided into about 20 different little parts. And they would do the individual resource estimation on those small components, because that's what they had the computing power to do, and extend it off. And that time, they're only dealing with about six elements. By the time I came in here, I think off of our our assay database might have had 300,000 samples in it, something like that. Now, Now we're at over 2 million, and we have over 3 million meters of diamond drilling and all kinds of other stuff to go along with that. We did have geostats packages, but they we certainly didn't have them sitting on the computers in front of us, you know, to do that. You'd have to go off and use more mainframe facilities, even though it, the transitioning was happening, but a complete different world than what we live in now. So our computing power now was unfathomable back in 1992 when I arrived there.
1: Wow. Yeah, I guess... That says a lot about the the size of the deposit and the lack of computing power in 1992. Your deposit's too big for for one computer. You need to subdivide the deposit. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, and the the important thing to think about the these two is you know it's just the the sheer volume of data and what you end up doing with them. So, what what the whole advancement in computing was supposed to do was allow us more time to actually think but I'm not sure we actually do that. You know, what as computing power grows, our data sets are growing, but is it actually allowing us any more time to think? I don't think so. You know, and that's, that's some of the, the things that we can still improve on is how do we better process that data more efficiently. So that gives us the time to do that, the thinking side and the interpretation. So long ago, it was all about just trying to handle the data and We spend a lot of time just handling the data versus spending the time manipulating it and actually doing something with it. So now we have far more time that we don't have to do all those hard tasks of how we're gonna just even look at our data. We now have that ability to look at it.
1: So how now in 2020, how does BHP handle and manipulate such large amounts of data? Yeah,
0: yep. Bigger computers, (laughs) you know? But we think back, you know, to Apollo 11, this is a long segue back. Our handheld calculators, which not most people use anymore, had more power in them than the computing system that took the man to the moon. You know, so we think about that. Our handheld calculators are more powerful. BHP, it's a big company. We don't have massive central computing facilities. Most of them are just done on local networks. That transitioning into the whole data analytics side of the world, that, that's a big push in, into that direction. But that on its own is dangerous. You know, data analytics on its own, when you don't have geoscientists looking at that data, you need to have process knowledge or knowledge of the data you're looking at in order to be most effective with it. So we are transitioning it into the more automated world of dealing with our data, but that can't just be done at a push of a button where somebody that doesn't know what that data actually represents to come out with a reasonable interpretation. One thing that I tell a lot of people is that that correlation does not equal causation. And when you take the big data approach and not have that detailed um, knowledge in whatever types of data sets you're looking at, whether it be a metallurgist or a geologist or a geophysicist or whatever, that when it's done without that process knowledge that just because you see a correlation of data, that doesn't mean that, that they're actually linked at all. And we have gotten ourselves in trouble by just because we see a correlation that that must mean that there's some fundamental reason, a cause and effect, and there may not be.
1: Right. Like even even going back to the beginning of the podcast when you were saying about the granite being the exact same age as the mineralization, but the granite probably itself isn't the causative intrusion. That's
0: right. Yeah.
1: I read about uh, a new IOCG system discovered 65 kilometers from Olympic yep. Dam a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk about this discovery a little bit? and How much of the discovery was a result of effectively utilizing all the data that you have at BHP? Yep.
0: It was, it was discovered by our exploration team, and it was called Oak Dam. And we have had two public releases on the data, and the valuation of the project still continues on. Our exploration team, they take all the data that's available to them, and recompile that data in a modern sense and and use that to try to evaluate the potential for mineralization out in areas. So I know our exploration team went through that process and they use the latest to date software and processes to integrate all that data to come out with a decision on where to drill or not. The other things that, that help them is the understanding, you know, if you're looking for an IOCG type system and you have Olympic Dam in your backyard, they were able to tap in the information that we had at Olympic Dam too and help to refine their models to say where they should look, you know? And so that's just a a standard thing that explorers do. And our guys were very successful at doing that. And
1: And do you have data scientists working with you or was it purely the exploration geology team that that made this discovery? Yeah,
0: it's the exploration. So data scientists, as, as data scientists know, it was the exploration team with different backgrounds in there and utilizing other people to help them with the big data sets, but they're the ones that actually processed all that data, you know, and they did a fantastic job. So, but it it, it was the beauty of compiling all the data that was available to him and then using all their experience to interpret that data to come out with the best targets.
1: Do you have any tips for other companies who would like to better utilize their large amounts of data? Like, can can this all be done by geologists? Or do you think that bringing in data scientists, is the way forward for all companies in the future as we continue to collect more and more data.
0: Yes. People that are intimately familiar with that, and if we want to call them data scientists to integrate these data sets, yes, but that has to be hand in hand with your with your technical specialist, you know, and your technical specialist, be it geologists, geochemists, geophysicists, whatever we want to call ourselves, geoscientists, they can't be done in isolation. You know, we're moving yeah. in a world um, more remote collection of data, bigger data sets, and you're having to integrate all these data sets. So as geoscientists, probably our our roles will be changing in the long term because as our ability to be out in the field more and more, that's becoming less and less and we're gathering more and more remote gathered data. So we have to bring in the data science side of, side of the world, but marry the data scientist just with the geoscientist in order to come up with yeah. the best interpretation as time goes on geoscientist skill sets will evolve to deal with that gone are the days when we're out banging, you know, bashing rocks, hammers on on the outcrop you have to try to find deposits that are hidden or that have been walked over in the past and not recognized, you also have to realize that we're having more and more remotely gathered data and bigger data sets. So we have to be able to integrate them all. And geoscientists can't do it on their own right now. So that's why we have to use those data scientists to come along with us.
1: Thank you for joining us on the Discovery to Recovery podcast. I'm Hallie Keeble, along with your hosts, Nicole Doucette and Ann Thompson. And please join us next week for a tech episode by Sequent on data. You can access past episodes on segweb.org podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG and Sequent Global on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels to get notified when the next episode comes out. A huge thank you to Kathy Erig, Tim Baker, and Betsy Friedlander, who generously gave us their time and insight for this podcast. This episode was written and produced by Hallie Keeble of Kobold Metals, with editing support from Nicole Doucette, Anne Thompson, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds from their album Confluence. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode and we'll catch you again next week.